Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is A. Maria. We released this episode, Out But Not Free, Surviving After Women's Prison, in the wake of International Women's Day. We speak with Carmen, a writer and artist who was discharged from Michigan Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility after being locked up for seven years. Before we begin, here's Kate Syed with some news you may have missed. On March 8th, women filled the streets around the world as part of this year's extraordinary international women's strike. The strike included mass actions globally in major cities across Mexico, Argentina, Spain, Pakistan, and India, all calling for an end to femicides as well as capitalist and patriarchal exploitation of all women. In a recent interview with Veronica Gago, a militant researcher based in Argentina that was part of the organizing effort of the strike in Buenos Aires, argues that, quote, there's a certain effervescence of discussion around trying to understand what this violence against women means, what the violence against feminized bodies means in general. We are trying to link the economic violence with police violence, as well as violence related to working conditions to political violence in general, end quote. On February 21st, the state of Florida has severely curtailed visitation for inmates in all 50 state prisons. The state cites staff shortages and contraband smuggling as reasons to restrict inmates from their loved ones, even though most smuggling into Florida prisons is done by corrections officers. This measure came in the wake of the eruption of Operation PUSH, a statewide prison strike organized by Florida inmates demanding better conditions. On March 1st, Detroit community organizer Sawatu Salama Ra was sentenced to two years in prison at the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility while five months pregnant, putting her health at risk after a history of high-risk pregnancy. She was convicted of two felonies for defending her family. Last summer, Sawatu, a concealed pistol license holder, pulled out her unloaded gun to try and prevent a driver from intentionally using their vehicle to run over Sawatu, her mother, and her two-year-old daughter. Sawatu's Freedom Team is continuing to fight for Sawatu's appeal, release, and her ability to birth and raise her children outside of prison bars. I am Alejo and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. I'm here with Carmen, a poet and artist whose writing was featured in our April 2017 episode titled Survival and Resistance, Women Organizing Toward Abolition. We ended that episode with a poem written and recorded by Carmen. At that time, Carmen was a prisoner at the Women's Huron Valley Prison, the only women's prison in the state of Michigan. Since then, Carmen has been released and currently resides in central Michigan. Hello, Carmen, and welcome back to our show. Hi, Alejo. Thank you. Carmen, you've been out since November. Can you tell us very briefly um, how was this first week of being of being back back out? I guess the biggest transition was getting used to that I had my own space again. I was used to being under like the permission of somebody else to do anything. I had to have permission to use the restroom. I had to have permission to leave my cell or an itinerary for the day. And so having that space and having the the freedom to do those things again somehow was a bit strange where it shouldn't be, you know? So thinking about that was kind of painful in a way because it shouldn't feel abnormal to be free. So when you're used to constantly being under watch, one of the things I noticed when I came home is that I had a difficult time shutting doors. And when I got behind of a shut door, it felt inappropriate. And I'm used to being 
within the line of sight of somebody all the time. I didn't really have like a, you have no personal space or no personal rights in prison. It's always subject to somebody else's whim, the whim of a guard, you know, and whether that be positive or negative, it's subject to somebody else's preference for your day, you know, or your time, your minutes, your hours. It doesn't, you don't get to choose. And when you try to choose, even when you're in your cell and you're working on things like, say, my writing and stuff, you, you're still subject to that person coming into your space. So it, it, it's not really your personal space. It's, it's hard to, it's always subject to the invasion, to the invasion of somebody else. Out of prison, it's very difficult to transition into feeling like you have your own control over your own space and your own choices. It was difficult for me to be around people. It still is three months out. So I'm okay. I kind of fake it to make it every day, <laughs> sort of. And I'm okay in like interacting. But when I get personal, like time with people, I'm <laughs> uncomfortable and I don't, I'm not used to it because in there, there's no, it's very inhuman. The treatment is very inhuman. So it, even with a guard that wants to be in somewhat, um, friendly or like considerate of your position in there, they can get in trouble for over familiarity just talking to you about what's on the news that day. It's that dehumanizing. You never get to have a conversation with somebody that you want to have a conversation with and be engaged and mm -hmm. feel like you're you exist as a human. That you you're something you say matters. Or so when you get out, it sort of feels the same way. You're afraid to have an opinion. Hmm. I I think that probably people that do a lot of time are this is more difficult for. I did um, seven years in prison, so I think that after years and years of stripping away from you having being a person, hmm. or your own self sense of self goes away. Hmm. So it becomes it, it's hard to get back again hmm. it's hard to find that competent person that you used to be is destroyed how did you feel like you were able to keep a sense of self inside the way that i tried to maintain a sense of self i think was through being novice in my writing and my paintings I could express myself in that way, but even those things are subject to seizure and harassment. And it's it's difficult to even think of those things as your own, to even have that as your sense of self, because even that painting or that personal piece of writing that you did can be taken away from you at any point or can be handled or mishandled by somebody if they there to come in and into your space and disrupt your area and take apart your things and kind of search your stuff for any reason that they want, even if it's an intimidation tactic. Or So it's difficult to even use your creativity as an outlet for uh, finding a sense of self in there because it's really not yours. Mm -hmm. It's not yours. Anything that you do is not yours, you know. And even after coming out, do you feel like you're still subject to, to that? I do. On parole, I do. I just had an instance recently. When I was released from prison, I was on, I was aware that I wasn't supposed to have contact with other felons. But there was a couple of girls that I had, I didn't, I wasn't near, I wasn't close to people in there. And like I say, you just 
have this such an inhuman experience, but sometimes you meet the the only people that treated me like I was a person in the past seven years were these couple of people. So immediately, I'm not allowed to have them in my life anymore. So again, they can take that away from me. <laughs> in there, we could talk and we could visit. But now that I'm on parole, I'm not allowed to talk to these girls. And it's difficult because... In seven years, the only people that you've been close to in seven years, when you go into prison, a lot of times, especially with women, uh, families fall off. It's a higher instance than with men in prison. Women tend to stick with men that go to prison, and it's not that way. I was put in county jail overnight, a, a scare tactic, because I had contact on Facebook with these two girls that I was, the only two people I've been close to in the past seven years, and we're we're not free. You know, we're out of prison, but we're not free. So I had to go through this process of being handcuffed again after all those years of being locked up. And I had been, I got out. I started college right away. I was working already within a week of being home. And I was doing all the right things and still am doing all the right things with my life. But still, it was taken away from me. It could be taken away from me that mm -hmm. easily. And they used the social media contact as a as a way to hold me in jail because they wanted to question me about an officer that worked for the prison that I was in. And so, again, it's like a rape that lasts and lasts. That's mm -hmm. what prison is like. And that's what parole is like. They it's something that you don't have any control. It was like an assault to my person, you know. I had to go in there. I had to be strip searched. I had to get naked in front of a guard. I didn't want to do that. I didn't have a choice. And without committing any kind of crime, I was handcuffed and taken to the county jail, and I had to go through that. It was a, almost a trauma. But this is what your money's paying for, for this lady to drive up here three hours to and keep me in county jail overnight to question me about something that isn't doesn't even have anything to do with me. You've read one of your poems in your latest collection of poems to one of one of your friends inside that's still inside. I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit about that or, or not. I do. It kind of connects to this a little bit. Actually, in prison, it's difficult to find solidarity and say, we are a people. As prisoners, you know, you're all going through it, you mm. know. So it's it's easy to feel like you're just separated from everything and that you're all alone. But these ladies, and this one lady that I wrote the poem about in particular, is very close with, to me, and I care a lot about her. She's a young girl. She's super intelligent. She um, does Shakespeare in prison. She's a wonderful actor a positive role model for other prisoners she works every day um just amazing young woman and that doesn't think very much of herself you know mm -hmm. and and it's they perpetuate that kind of thing and there it's not department that if there's nothing corrective about about being in prison it hurts more than it helps mm -hmm. you know there's nothing that you take away from that experience of being dehumanized that is healthy. Mm -hmm. Right? So, but after I got out, 
it was easier to look back on it and say there was solidarity there. You know, we did find each other mm-hmm. there. Me and this girl in particular um, became very close. And I hope that we'll always be friends. And right now, I can't contact her. I was arrested because I wrote her letter. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and she's one of the only female friends I've ever had in my life. And I found her there. But they've taken her from me. And I can't even tell her why. Even in the prison, she has a difficult time finding her space and fitting in because she's African-American, but she's also like a little skater, geek, like punk (laughs) type, you know, it's things that she's into. And um, so she has a difficult time because people of her own race give her a hard time because she was hanging out with me and I'm Caucasian. Mm. So she gets it from both sides, you know? She doesn't fit in with white people. She doesn't fit in with her own race. So she's sometimes feels like she's really on the outside of everything. So I wrote this piece titled Michaela, Hmm. and it was actually in relation to Robin Coste Lewis's Voyage of a Sable Venus. Can you read for us? I can. Okay, the poem is titled Michaela, and it reads, I am not supposed to be this, bleached shell or even bone, yet these are my hands, waving, waving. I know at the bottom is such violence, the south still feels like home. In photographs, our bodies meet on granite ledges, but surface has no color at depths like this. All her knowing of me, all parts of my life. If I could make sense out of the way water forms around something, receives slow because I am the same as her. Even if our eyes are only daring the Mississippi, the threat of deadly flooding is real. Like this pen is real. White sheets are real. Mouthfuls of black blood, ships swallowed under the seafloor, beneath ravens, thunderclouds, and white insomnia. You must feel, you must see that we've drowned. And so we ask you, are you sailors? Because if we had a name, it would be ocean. And we would not try to understand. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. This is only one of many poems you've written inside, right? You wrote this 
yeah. in the past year. Right. There's actually a postcard from 2016 that you sent to um, Humanize the Numbers out of the University of Michigan, which is one of your drawings, I believe, right? Yeah, it was a pencil sketch. The image is drawn from the shading in. So the image that you see of the woman is actually negative space. Mm. And so the point behind that was, for me, was that I felt like in prison, you're sort of negative space. You don't exist anymore in the realm of the outside world. So you feel... And you that's know, and that's so. and you wrote something on that postcard too with that drawing that you made that seeks to evoke that negative space as well, right? You you said, I chose to write a poem to express the hurt of constant longing to go beyond the pane of glass, the fence, and its existence to the life I knew before this, to the person still reflected when I look inward. Remember, we existed. Yeah. That's what you wrote on the on the postcard. Yeah. I just wanted people to know that we still exist in there. It's easy for everybody to operate around that place, and you might drive by it every day and get used to seeing it where it doesn't. It becomes commonplace to you. But there's a whole world going on inside of there. Mm-hmm. There's people that are living their lives every day, and some people aren't never, will never leave. So it is their life. And they're learning, and they're teaching, and they're communicating, and finding a way to still be a people. In this carceral system, the little things that you have to make an existence, it's such a teetery thing, you know, and you're desperate to have those things to make your life worth living in there. And so it's hard, like you're scared to report people for doing the wrong things because you're afraid of losing the little bit of things that you the opportunities yeah. that you have yeah. so it's it's unfortunate that they can use even educational opportunities as a way to dissuade you from speaking out for yourself you know yeah and before you're mentioning also how in a way this continues after being uh, being out right i mean this constant fear of retaliation and the fear yeah, of it's constant a constant fear of anything you know you i fear just anything they could use to to take my freedom away again. I don't want to lose what I've built so far, and I've only been home a short time, but just having those little parts of my life back, like going to work every day, I don't want that taken away again. So I have a fear of everything when I'm driving down the road. I have a fear of going a mile over 55, you know, (laughs) because I'm afraid of having police contact. Yeah. Uh, the contact, it's physical contact itself scares me, but also just the fear of contact, because if I have contact with a police officer, even for a traffic violation, I can go back to prison. So you operate under this constant fear of, well, ask me to go and do things with them. Like a couple of my co-workers want me to go to lunch, but I, I'm afraid to go because I just don't know what they do Personally, I just don't know them personally, so mm-hmm. I'm afraid to speak to anybody that I don't know personally and does don't know exactly what they do because I don't want to be guilty by association. Mm-hmm. So it sort of keeps me in this sort of prison even out here. So when you when you get home, have you gotten a chance to write, continue writing or drawing, painting? Well, right now I'm actually staying with some friends. So it's difficult to find creative space when you're living in the middle of a family. So the transition would be, I think, would be easier 
if I had my own space, but right now I don't. I've been doing some writing, staying up late hours of the night and doing some writing then. I haven't painted since I've been home, but I'm, I want to so much. So operating every day, like going to work every day and trying to act like a normal human being when inside I don't feel that way, hmm. it, it's a difficult thing to, to, to maneuver through, you know, because you want people to think you're normal. You have to go to work every day and your boss has to think you're okay. (laughs) But then when the person walks away from you that you've just had a totally normal conversation with and you're thinking, do they know that I'm a prisoner? You know, (laughs) you think that people might recognize that about you or, or how do you bring it up in even conversation where people sort of shy away from you then like a a meeting even when you do meet new people and you have to explain eventually that you're in a transition from prison or on parole and then they don't call you anymore you know so it's it's difficult well you've written many many poems um in this in this past few years would you mind sharing one last poem with us yeah so this one's sort of about women in general, like being just a woman. I find that before in my life, I didn't really consider the solidarity of even women and like a feminist movement or mm. anything like that. So this poem is titled Rebel. Is there any unfamiliar pain? Robin Lewis asked me this once, but I couldn't take in and feel those words of hers. And so I had no answer to give. Life is suffering. The notion of I... We betray, dominate, and abandon one another. Silence is a common language. Among us, David Bowie once proclaimed, the only school for the musician is the road. We the contradiction. In 1940, middle-class white women were expected to marry less than 5% of us had careers in law or medicine. But it's all about that sound. Dred Scott decided in 1857 a slave remained a slave, even in free territory. Life is but a dream of power, influence, and income. Our grandmothers keep their shoes in closets, so in our musings we pale-faced girls think, I'd like to try that. Prior to 1940, working women were single, poor, and failed. Many black women viewed women's rights as narrow concern of middle-class white women, white women who were insensitive to black concerns. Numerous women defended traditional roles, viewing feminism as as subverting family and community. After Topeka in 1945, thousands of our black families withstand harassment, economic intimidation, and violence to desegregate our schools. Some sounds just aren't humorous. Between 1941 and 1945, 6.5 million women take jobs. By the end of the 40s, 25% of all women are employed. Four years later, the number of working women soars 36% more, greater than the previous 40 years combined. The rapid industrialization of the South ends cotton culture. The demise of need for underclass, unskilled, subjugated labor. Lyndon Johnson signs the Voters' Rights Act. 1965, TV shots, snarling police dogs attack our black demonstrators. Hate-filled white faces frenzied at the effrontery of our little black children going to school. Our tongues, they has roots. In 1970, black buying power tops $25 billion. 
enough to make boycotts effective weapons for social change. American society need not be static. The war ends. Americans believe we women should return to our rightful place in the home. Historians neglect the role of women. Ferdinand Ludberg and Marina Farnham argue female employment is feminist conspiracy. We betray our biological destiny. Agnes Meyer writes, Although women have many careers, we only have one vocation, motherhood. Americans agree. To a surprising extent, we succeed in job market only. Our employment legitimized as patriotic necessity. In 1970, our black population in metropolitan areas soars more than 7 million, a greater number than any total immigration of a single nationality group in American history. We altered the race configuration. No longer could we be left in the hands of Southern whites. 1986, no black families lived in my town until I was six, maybe seven. I met a black girl at recess, and she sat on the swings. Her and me, we played, would not go inside when the bell rang. Our aggression turned against the oppressor for once, not against ourselves. In 1960 alone, 16 African nations emerged from under white colonial rule, she claimed. Her affirmation of blackness, an erosion of pseudo-scientific white supremacy, desire and will, our I will, would not be significant enough. Social alteration is not individual conversion. Questioning our sphere of responsibility amounts to heresy. Feminists are viewed as lunatic fringe. Most of us still exhibit little feminist consciousness. Discrimination is so pervasive that we view it as the rule of the game. Few of us exhibit the wherewithal to protest. It is unrealistic for us to think we can move into a posture of I as women in rebellion. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thank you for, for your courage, for your words, for your poetry. Thank um, you. <laughs> is there any last words you'd like to, to tell our, our audience in, in Michigan and, and beyond? Find a way to contact somebody inside and encourage their creativity and empower them through education. I think that education is key to reducing recidivism because once you have some success, you want to build on successes. It gives you, there's very little positive opportunity in there, but the one, but, but when you do, Get it? You start to, every time you succeed at something, you start believing you can exceed it. You can exceed that level and succeed again and again and again and again. It builds on itself. So if there's anything that I would suggest that anybody do is just to reach out and with any kind of opportunity, even for people in transition leaving prison, to, to have some opportunity to get involved with community. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rustbelt Abolition Radio Crew. Andres, E. Maria, David Langstaff, Catalina Rios, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity. <laughs>